for Spin Cycle, the show that acts as a kind of help group for the news obsessed. Uh, broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, lands for which sovereignty has never been ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I'm Jess Lilly and I'm flying solo this week as Rachel and Charlie have fulfilling lives away from their volunteer broadcasting roles. How dare they? But don't go away because I have an amazing guest for you. I'll be chatting with Peter Grest, a name that will be familiar to you, I'm sure, as uh, this time 10 years ago, Peter's face was all over the world news as he sat in prison in Egypt in a case that highlighted the political persecution journalists face in many countries around the world. We will be talking about that, press freedom, whistleblower protections, anti-doxing legislation if we have time, and much more. Uh, um, and Peter is just an amazing guy, so stick around for that conversation. As with every week at the moment, I do want to acknowledge, I do want to start the show by acknowledging the figures um, published by the Committee to Protect Journalists regarding casualties in Gaza. So as of yesterday, um, the uh, CPJ have um, published 88 journalists and media workers as confirmed dead, 83 Palestinian, two Israeli and three Lebanese, 16 journalists reported injured, four missing and 25 reported arrested and they are investigating ongoing reports of assaults, threats, cyber attacks, censorship and more. If you want to know more about how those figures have been obtained and what the CPJ do to track these, um, not just in Gaza but other uh, other countries and conflicts around the world, um, track the attacks and threats on journalists, you can visit cpj.org. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. Peter Grest is a former journalist and foreign correspondent whose 30-year journalism career saw him work predominantly in the Middle East, Latin America and Africa for news organisations including Reuters, CNN, the BBC and Al Jazeera English. Then, in December 2013, Peter became the news story when his face flashed around the globe in what he charmingly refers to on his LinkedIn profile as a 400-day spell in Egypt on terrorism charges. After his release from prison, Peter became an advocate for press freedom. He co-founded the Alliance for Journalists' Freedom and is now a professor of journalism at Macquarie University. Peter will be speaking in Melbourne next month with the Whistleblower Justice Fund, but tonight joins us here on Spin Cycle and Triple R. Welcome, Peter. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Oh, it's so great to talk to you. Um, for listeners who might not be familiar with your uh, arrest in Egypt on falsifying news charges and subsequent imprisonment, could you talk us through what happened? Yeah, sure. We, I was in Egypt covering the ongoing political crisis between the government that had been installed by the military after, after a coup had ousted the Muslim Brotherhood, which is the first democratically elected government in Egypt's history, and, um, the, and, the, and the supporters of the Brotherhood who were continuing to protest. And so the, the the environment was really toxic. Um, we were doing what most journalists are supposed to do, and that was talk to all of the parties involved in, in the crisis, and that, of course, included the Brotherhood. And um, the government took exception to that. They accused, they come to accusing the Brotherhood of being involved in acts of terror, and uh, by speaking to the Brotherhood and, and putting their views and their responses to the political 
uh, the developing political situation on air, we the government um, accused us of being acts of, of being agents of terrorism. They accused us of being members of the terrorist organisation, of um, financing terrorism, of broadcasting mm. false news with intent to undermine national security. It was <laughs> all pretty, wow. pretty serious and, and pretty bizarre. Yeah, yeah, it was a, a hell of a bunch. Of, it was a hell of a rap sheet. <laughs> I mean, the the um, the prosecution was internationally, uh, I think, agreed upon as to be quite a farce, a farcical situation. Yeah. But it did result in uh, a, a seven year um, sentence, prison sentence, for you and your two fellow Al Jazeera journalists. What what was that like for you? What was the, it knowing that you had the support of the international community, knowing that this was very publicly broadcast that that there was an agreed understanding that that the charges were bogus to then be given that sentence with two fellow journalists one who was canadian but one was local and egyptian how did that feel for the three of you that was pretty devastating i mean anybody who watched any of anything of the trial recognized just how farcical the allegations were against us there, there was no evidence the gap between the, the reality of what we've been doing and, and, and those really serious charges was so wide that I really struggled for a long time to understand how, how we'd found ourselves in that situation until I realised that this that the charges really weren't about anything that we'd done and, and everything about what we'd come to represent, and that mm. was that was press freedom. Um, mm. The government was trying to send a message to foreign correspondents and local journalists alike that you will not speak to the opposition. Um, you will tow the party line. And, you know, as devastating as it was, once I came to understand it as, as a battle for press freedom, it, it felt as though we, we had something much more significant than just ourselves to, to fight for. Um, and I think that made it a lot easier. And, and knowing, too, that we had the backing of, of so many of our colleagues and, and governments around the world also made an enormous difference. Mm. And uh, and obviously it did, um, as a result, you were, you were freed after a lot of international pressure and outrage, and it did um, lead you to go and um, form the Alliance for Journalist Freedom. So what did that experience and that perspective Sort of, what perspective did it give you on the level of risk that journalists take in different parts of the world that, you know, perhaps we don't see at all here necessarily? Yes, I, so I, I wrestled with what what was going on for a very long time until I realised that um, what had happened to us was the way in which really was a result of, of the fallout from from nine eleven. In a lot of the conflicts pre nine eleven. Journalists were considered as observers rather than participants. We saw those those conflicts over tangible things like land or water or ethnicity, things stuff you could literally put your finger on. And so journalists were observers to those conflicts. Often, of course, it's always dangerous in those sorts of environments, but journalists weren't specific targets in that. But what 9-11 did was, was create a conflict over ideas, over isms. Mm. And in that kind of conflict, journalists have become literally a part of the battle space, the place where those ideas are transmitted. And and so I, you know, and what I saw after we were released was the way in which national security had become the, the, the kind of touchstone for governments around the world uh, who, who were looking to lock up journalists for uncomfortable reporting. Um, at the moment, the the Committee to Protect Journalists reckons that we're at the world's at the second highest uh, number of journalists in prison on record. Wow. Uh, 
that's and, and, and it was only last year, the previous year rather, that um, the numbers were were at record levels. We can talk about you know what's going on with those numbers, but the key thing that I want to point out here is that two thirds of the journalists who've been in prison are there on on what the CPJ describes loosely as anti-state charges. So that's things like terrorism, treason, sedition, false news, and that kind of thing. Precisely the charges that me and my two colleagues uh, have been convicted on. And I, I think that tells you a lot about the way in which governments have come to think about journalism and use national security as a way to silence uncomfortable reporting. On that note, what, what can you tell us more about the Alliance for Journalists' Freedom that you, you um, co-founded with um, two of your, um, I, I'm going to call them friends because they were very active in getting you released from prison. Um, what's, what are the, you know, what are the aims of AGF and what, or AJF, I should say, and what, what are you working towards and working to achieve? Well, we, we, when we had a look at the situation in Australia, we realised that we're, we're in a very similar position. I'm not suggesting that Australia is about to become Egypt anytime soon. We're, we're not seeing journalists locked up with impunity in the way that um, I and my colleagues were in Cairo. But Australia is the world, literally the world record holder when it comes to national security legislation post 9-11. Mm. We've seen 92 separate pieces of legislation mm. passed since then, and that is an absolutely colossal number. And the problem in Australia is that we've got no constitutional protection for freedom of speech or freedom of the press. Um, we are unique also in that regard, um, certainly in the, in, in the Western liberal democratic world. And so... What's happened is that a lot of those those pieces of law, a lot of those pieces of legislation, either directly or indirectly undermine freedom of speech, press freedom and, and other human rights. Now, we think, as in the AJF think, that that's, that's a real problem. It, it's chipped away at the space that journalists are able to operate in. We know that we're not going to get um, a constitutional amendment through, and our experience, of course, with The Voice yeah. has, has shown that just how challenging it is um, getting any kind of amendment in, in, through Australian into Australian constitution. If you could, and though, what would that look like? Do you mean like a, a, a freedom of speech constitutional amendment? Well, yes, ideally. I mean, the constitutional amendment ideally would include a, whole, a, a complete bill of rights. Yeah. Um, but that that becomes politically incredibly messy and complicated, mm. which is yep. why we're, we're aiming for something that's a little less ambitious, but what we think is achievable, but get the same kind of results. And that's that's um, a, freedom, a media freedom act, and that will do pretty much what the First Amendment does in the US, and that's guarantee for, for journalism at least, and that's. Um, can do three basic things: compel Parliament to always, um, always consider media freedom when they're passing new legislation. It would compel the courts to interpret existing legislation in ways that are consistent with media freedom, and compel uh, public servants to act in ways that support media freedom. And we think if if you can do those three things, you've you've, you've gone a long way to solving the problem. Uh, one thing that I'm curious about is. Um, I mean, yes, governments, you know, parliament and legislation is one thing, but what about media organisations themselves? And we we were sort of talking about this when we chatted earlier today, but, you know, if we look at the most kind of um, inflammatory situation for journalists, particularly abroad, but I'm just going to start with a reference to here, um, 
if we look at what's happening in Gaza, back in November, some 270 journalists locally um, from a broad range of news organisations signed an open letter asking for fairer coverage of the um, conflict in Gaza um, from across the board, from all media organisations, and there were a few kind of points that they, they asked for to achieve that. The response of most media organisations was to tell their reporters um, not to sign open letters, and Nine Papers editors banned any of the journalists who had signed that letter from any reporting um, or production related to the war, and that ban continues three months on. What... What about media organisations themselves? What what effect does something like that have on press freedom, on on sort of trust in media? Look, this is a really complicated question. The problem is, I, I, at one level, I have some sympathy with the news organisations because what you don't want is the political views of your journalists to be to be public. Um, you, you should be able to read a story and not recognise what the political views of, of the writer are ultimately. Um, and signing a letter like that, in some respects, flags, I guess, some kind of uh, position on, on, on the Gaza-Palestine, the Gaza-Israel conflict. But at the same time, as you said, that letter was a critique of, of media itself, and and it was an attempt to, to address a lot of the problems, some of the problems that a lot of the secretaries saw in, in the media. And, I, and so I think in, in that respect, it was... It, it, they should have had a lot more tolerance for that and a lot more understanding and a recognition that actually maybe there are some editorial issues that, that need addressing. The problem, of course, is that that conflict in the, 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 the Israel-Gaza conflict is just so excruciatingly polarising mm. that it's almost impossible to have a conversation without finding yourself in a trench, um, you know, fighting off one side or the other. Yeah. If we just look at Gaza again, just for a moment, um, the there is, um, I mean, we know obviously from experiences like yours among many and, and since and before then, the targeting of journalists in some countries is not new. But the level of attacks and arrests of Palestinian journalists in Gaza does seem shocking and unprecedented. It is something that you wrote about in an article for The Conversation um, a couple of months ago. Could you provide some context for that? Yeah, sure. So the number of journalists... I've written two, two articles, one about the number of journalists killed in Gaza, which is staggering. It's at a higher rate than, than at any time since records began, and that was in 1991. And as far as we can tell, probably the, the, the highest rate since, since, since the Second World War. Um, the number of journalists are, are well over 80, close, depending on the numbers that you look at, closer to 100 or more. Um, it is a staggeringly high proportion and, and more than, than obviously some you'd expect some to be killed um, in a conflict with so many civilian deaths. But it seems clear that, that well, there's circumstantial evidence that, that um, some of those, at least some of those journalists, probably quite a large number of them, have been, have been targeted. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a very, very serious problem. Um, there are no foreign journalists inside Gaza beyond the non-Palestinian journalists that are inside Gaza at the moment are Israelis who are there um, as parts of, of embeds. Um, they're with Israeli troops, and so the only perspective they'll have of that conflict is the perspective of, of the Israeli soldiers. Um, and so we really need those, those Gazan journalists to... to to be able to report mm. and report freely. 
in the West Bank, we've seen um, quite a large number of journalists um, detained. The numbers are it's a little bit unclear. The, the census that I referred to earlier by the, the Committee to Protect Journalists uh, takes a snapshot on, on December 1st each year. <coughs> Excuse me. And that's to help them make comparisons year on year. And we know at that point there were, there were about 14 journalists imprisoned um, by the Israelis. They, they were detained in what's called administrative detention, which sounds benign enough, but in fact it's a very serious form of detention that denies um, the people who've been, un who've been arrested um, access to, gives them access to lawyers, but only military lawyers. We don't know what the charges are against them. We, we don't know what the evidence is against them. Um, it is a very, very restrictive form of detention. Um, it allow, it's basically detention by the military to try and stop um, terrorists from attacking them. We don't know. It's possible mm. that some of the journalists may have been engaged in terrorism or had connections to terrorist organisations, but we also know that a lot of those journalists were trying to report on clashes between the, the Israeli settlers and Palestinians in the West Bank and, and as a result found themselves in, in, in detention. Uh, I'm interested, like, obviously, Peter, as you know, I mean, we are all grappling with what we're seeing <laughs> and and to your point, the only reports we're getting directly out of Gaza come from people on the ground. Um, and I think, you know, um, those there are a lot of first-person um, reports that, you know, that sort of challenge perhaps the traditional notions of journalism. And I know, you know, we talked earlier today and... and you reacted to the concept of citizen journalism, like this idea of first-person perspectives from people who might not have traditionally, you know, been um, brought up in news organisations, but but it's still journalism. But what is your what is your perspective on this changing landscape of how we are being reported to um, f from various kind of in ver various situations? Yeah. So my view is that um, there's no such I, I hate the term citizen journalist, as you, as you mentioned. As far as I'm concerned, there's only journalism. Um, these days, anybody with a smartphone is capable of producing journalism-like content. Uh, what distinguishes journalism from not journalism is the way in which the information is gathered, organised and, and checked and presented. And as long as it's done according to widely recognised journalistic standards and ethics and, and procedures, then I've got. Then I think it's safe to call it journalism. That's not to say that everything we're seeing coming out of Gaza counts as journalism. Mm -hmm. uh, in a personal blog post about what's happened to you and your family, is important, and it's it's really important that we know and understand that. But that, that's not the same as somebody who is a, going out on their own to check the number of people who are killed in an airstrike um, and mm -hmm. checking those figures with the local authorities, um, speaking to other witnesses and so on, and, 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 and reporting that. Um, that. I don't really care who's doing the reporting. I don't care you know, whether you've been formally trained or not, as long as the work that you're producing meets those professional standards. And I think we have to consider it as, as journalism. I think that neatly takes us to the subject of whistleblowers because um, obviously they are people, you know, generally who never intended 
to be reporters <laughs> um, or, you know, um, sort of embroiled in media reporting, but then through a series of consequences do become such. And um, this is something that obviously you're very passionate about and you will be in Melbourne next month to um, speak in an event that asks the question, why are whistleblowers still facing jail time? Um, I guess, um, you know, what is... It's a subject we've talked about a lot on Spin Cycle and I'm really interested to hear your perspective on what needs to change in this country. There's a lot of lip service to, to um, updating legislation, but we still persecute whistleblowers. Yeah, so there has been some up, some changes in the legislation. The government says that it's uh, insists that it's made quite a lot of changes. Um, there are a couple of things, that, and, and to its credit, it has improved the situation somewhat. But it's not perfect. And one of the main things that's missing, that's still missing, is a whistleblower authority, which is considered to be the gold standard in all sorts of countries around the world. And that's that's an independent organisation that has the legal mandate to speak to whistleblowers and give them advice about what they can and can't reveal and, and steer them through a very complicated legal minefield. And that includes, if need be, talking to journalists. Uh, the problem is that journalists, and, journalists should be considered as the whistle of last resort. Um, if all of the internal mechanisms fail, and, and they sometimes do, then whistleblowers should be allowed to go to the media and expose what they're seeing taking place. Now, mm. the government says it's fixed a lot of those problems, but the fact of the matter is that we see two of Australia's most prominent whistleblowers, David McBride, who revealed the Afghan files to the ABC about allegations of, of uh, war crimes by Australian special forces in Afghanistan, and um, Richard Boyle, the um, tax office whistleblower who, who exposed the, a lot of the uh, problems with robo-debt um, and, and aggressive tax collection practices by the, by the tax office in, in South Australia. Now, both of those guys are facing jail time. David McBride has been forced to, to, um, to plead guilty. Um, he wasn't allowed to use the defences that um, he, he believed he, he, he was justified in using. And so the court has to give him, has to sentence him. Now, we still think that, that um, well, nobody suggested that anything David McBride published or gave to the ABC was genuinely damaging to national security. Nothing published exposed or undermined security of anybody. Um, but at the same time, what David revealed was genuinely and indisputably in the public interest. And so David is a perfect example of a whistleblower who, who did the right thing. He went internally, the internal mechanisms failed, and so he went to the media. But as a result, he found himself being prosecuted and and and, and faces the very real possibility of, of, of jail time. Now, any, civil, any public servant who has information that exposes some form of wrongdoing um, is hearing the, the Attorney General's promises of, of uh, reform and, and a safe environment for whistleblowers on the one hand, but then sees David McBride in the dock about to go to prison on the other. And, and I think mm. it's going to be David McBride that's going to send, that's going to tell you what you can expect to see. And that's, that I think is, is, is really problematic. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess, I mean, it's what I'm kind of interested in as well is with with the I, I get okay. Let me start again. We are also seeing this week the government talk about in, enacting strict stricter well anti doxing legislation um, that 
potential could have the potential effect of making whistleblowing harder. So it's well, there's this kind of one on the one hand this conversation around um, making um, you know creating a legislative environment where whistleblowing can be um, can be protected but then yeah. but then the same government is talking about legislation which actually possibly could make journalism and whistleblowing harder yeah I, I think it's uh, be careful about um, using the, talking about anti-doxing laws in, in the context of whistleblowing remember the anti-doxing legislation is designed to stop people's private information from being revealed and it's hard to see the circumstances in which a whistleblower might need to expose private information but this is still a big issue for journalists and media mm. freedom um, journalists will often need and, and need to access private information to confirm um, confirm things that are, that are happening. Um, it's it's it's. I won't say it's inevitable, but it is really problematic. Now, I can see why the government is doing this, particularly in the context of, of the leak of a bunch of of um, Jewish community people who you know who are part of a, a WhatsApp group and, and having their personal information published. Um, and, and exposing them to all sorts of, of abuse, I think, is is pretty shocking and, and, and unacceptable, regardless of what was what they were discussing. Um, I I find that very difficult to accept, and I understand why the government might be moving to stop that. But the problem for the media is that the, the kind of anti-doxing legislation that they're passing makes it very very difficult. Um, to publish a lot of information that is genuinely in the public interest. Uh, now, we, the HAF, is, if we go back to the Media Freedom Act that we discussed earlier, one of the things that we are doing is building in a presumption in favour of publishing. Um, we believe that there has to be a debate in court, whenever journalism is involved, between the public interest in what the journalist is exposing and the public interest in the prosecution. Those two things aren't always... The courts aren't always required to balance those two, those two things. Our draft Media Freedom Act would, would change that. It would, it would basically say that you've got to have that argument. You've got to be able to say... You'll give journalists the chance to say why the story that they want to publish is in the public interest, and that public interest is more important than the prosecution to stop um, to stop the publication of that material for whatever reason. And we think that if you can build in that opportunity to have that discussion in court, then you're establishing a mechanism that can properly address and protect media freedom as well as the, the, the appropriate privacy of individuals. Yeah. I mean, I guess with, when it comes to whistleblowers, my, the, the response, was, the, my thought was this: someone on the um, social media this week who was um, involved in bringing the robo-debt case to light um, said, and obviously this is very anecdotal, that, you know, the, the work that they'd done on that, would they would have possibly been prosecuted for under this and, and under this anti-doxing legislation. So, you know, it, it is possibly another kind of um, a sort of tool that can be wielded to keep people from, from, from releasing information that they feel, um, about, you know, about organisations yeah. or, or people who are doing wrong um, publicly. 
Yeah, and I think that's, and I do think that's that's an issue. Look, after the, you, you might remember back in 2019, the Australian Federal Police raided journalists from two news organisations, yes, yeah. uh, the ABC and News Corp, Amicus Mavis from News Corp. And after that raid, after those raids, there was a whole lot of soul searching and a lot of controversy. But the New York Times took a big, a deep look at, at um, Australian political culture and, and our legislation, and they concluded that it con- con- concluded that the Austra- that Australia might well be the world's most secretive democracy, and I mm. think that is fundamentally a problem. That our, our instinct, our knee-jerk reaction, whenever we're faced with a situation like this, is to is to lock up information rather than to go for transparency. And ultimately, I think that's a problem. We do have to protect people's private information, um, but we. And there are narrow pieces of uh, slices of national security information which are genuinely sensitive and that we must also uh, make sure can't be published. But those those bits of information are far narrower than than the law currently allows, and, and, and as I said, anti-doxing legislation actually expands that doesn't doesn't reduce it. Um, before I let you go, Peter, I would be I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. Um, you know, if you were to give a message to journalists who are sort of wading through this current environment in the media landscape. I mean, journalism, I think, is really hard in Australia at the moment, particularly news journalism. Um, and I think, you know, for a lot of young journalists, given what is happening at the moment and what we've talked about and, you know, pressure from potentially editorially from newsrooms, there's a lot of pressure not to express anything publicly on social media you know what is your advice to journalists now to um to navigate this landscape and given that press freedom is you know so important for individual journalists what can they do to make sure that they are not being silenced or censored or or feel like leaving the industry (laughs) that's a lot of doing yeah i I, look it's a huge question Ultimately, I think it's, it really is about sticking to your guns and making sure that we, we, we publish in the public interest and, and, and be prepared to, to have a few fights about it. Um, I think we also need, we also need to recognise that um, well, journalists will recognise that if they do find themselves you know, being challenged by, by the courts or the police, that there are plenty of other people, other journalists who will be behind them. We, we've got to... We've got to push this. We've got to fight for this. We've got to, and um, I'd also urge you guys, to, everyone, to, to join the fight for the Media Freedom Act because I think that will go a hell of a long way towards solving the issues that we're facing right now. I have had a question come in on our text line from a listener. I hope you don't mind. Um, Someone has said uh, journalism is about speaking truth to power. As uh, when our reporting leads to anti-doxing laws in the context of a group chat that was after people's jobs, isn't that problematic? Look, as I said, I'm not suggesting there's an easy answer to this. Uh, my argument is ultimately that there is, if, if there is a public interest in publishing, then, then that should be, we should be allowed to, to argue for that. Yes. Um, and, and it's very difficult to make a sweeping kind of generalisations. What we're saying here is that um, if journalists have information and you can make a, make a case for publishing in the public interest, then you should be allowed to make that case. Mm. Um, and I, I think at the moment it's, it's too difficult, if not impossible, in, in a lot of circumstances to make that case. 
Next month, if listeners want to come along and see you, you are going to be at the State Library on March the 5th um, as part of um, an event uh, called Why Whistleblowers Still Facing Jail Time. I believe it's a week out from um, the, the sentencing, sentencing of... Yes, Yes. Yeah. What, can you tell us a little bit more about the event? Uh, yeah, look, it's going to be a panel discussion with myself, um, Kieran Pender from the Human Rights Law Centre, um, Rex, Patters, uh, Rex Patrick from uh, the, the former uh, independent MP, who's now a, a um, whistleblower champion, uh, and a number of other uh, prominent figures. And, and I, we're just going to have a discussion about the issues that this raises and, and um, raise awareness for the, for the plight that David is, is facing and, and hopefully you know, make the courts understand that there is, there is still a lot of people who believe that David McBride should be a free man. A hundred percent. If listeners want to go, you can go to droptheprosecutions.org.au forward slash RSVP underscore Melbourne. You can work it out. <laughs> Thank you so much, Peter Grest. I really appreciate the time you've taken. This, this went a little bit longer than we anticipated, so I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Triple Thanks so much to Peter Grest for a big and necessary chat about the state of news journalism at the moment. And there's a lot happening out there. It's pretty brutal. It's pretty devastating. And I just implore everyone to take care. And, uh, hey, let's all lobby for peace. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Sample, at Lily Juice, and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this.